This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to Episode 7 of The Full Ratchet. As always, I'm your host, Nick Moran, and today I am interviewing Michael Gruber about angel groups. We're going to be covering a number of questions, including uh, what are angel groups? What are their key functions? What value do they provide to individual angels? How are investments organized? And a number of other questions on the subject. A little housekeeping before we get started. If you aren't quite clear about what defines one as an angel or what accreditation is, then it would be best to listen to episode three where I interviewed David S. Rose. Uh, We covered a lot of the basics on angel investing in that episode. Uh, Today's interview will build on that, and it will go a level deeper. We will also talk today about VC funds versus angels, as well as the fee structures, including management and carries. Uh, If you want a refresher on these subjects, we cover them in Episode 2 with Chris Yeh. Okay, I've also been getting some feedback from a number of you and really appreciate that. Certainly continue to provide constructive feedback as it will help me adapt and make the format of the show and the content that we cover more valuable. Uh, If you'd like to provide feedback, three easy ways to do so include, number one, you could leave it in a review on iTunes. Number two, you could write it in the comments section of the episode at fullratchet.net. Or number three, you could just email me. My address is nick at fullratchet.net. All right, for those of you that can't fit a full episode into your commute, exercise routine, or whenever it is that you listen to the podcast, a quick tip that I use to listen to podcasts faster is to speed up the playback. Uh, It's pretty easy to do it if you're listening to the show on a smartphone. Uh, Just hit play as normal, but then look in the bottom left corner of the screen and you'll see something that says speed 1x. If you press that, then you can change it to 1.5 or 2x. I leave mine at 1.5x. It's a little strange to get used to at first because it kind of sounds like chipmunks talking, but after a few episodes, you'll get used to it, and it helps if you're pressed for time. Okay, let's get into the interview on the power of angel groups, why investors join them, and what value they provide. Michael Gruber is with us today. He is the founder of Cornerstone Angels and is a partner of Independence Equity, an early-stage venture fund. You know, there's a number of very strong angel groups in Chicago, and I was really fortunate to meet Michael and have learned quite a bit from him over this past year. Michael, I'm glad to be a member of the group and happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start out with some detail on angel groups and angel syndicates. But before we do that, can you give us a sense for how you got into the startup investing world? Well, I spent a lot of time with operating companies, both within software and hardware, And I spent over 10 years out in Silicon Valley with a variety of startup companies, some being private, others that actually went public. 
as well as time actually in Asia and Japan with a large software gaming company. So I spent time building companies from a development standpoint, marketing, as well as business development. And uh, through that effort, I uh, then later on joined a early stage fund. And uh, through that effort, I got to know a uh, angel group in the, in the Bay Area, was one of the founding members of that organization. And that really started the path of which I'm on now. I had moved then from Silicon Valley to Chicago. I was looking on what to do, uh, starting a new company, helping to run a new company or team. And uh, what I then decided was I, I wanted to sort of build out my network within Chicago, and I, I basically created the Chicago Midwest chapter for this angel group. And, that, and then that started the process, which then evolved into, into Cornerstone Angels as it is today. Got it. So we've talked a little bit in the past about angel groups and angel syndicates on the podcast. We're going to go deep today. So uh, first of all, Michael, what is an angel group? What is an angel syndicate? And how do they work? So an angel group is a, uh, a network of individuals, all high net worth individuals who are accredited, meet the accredited definition by the SEC. So the idea of the group is one, you're bringing together uh, many different folks who have a diverse set of experiences, both uh, functional as well as sector-wise. And through that amalgam of experiences, you're able to get to a much better set of results of deciding on what to invest or what not to invest. So as an example, I'll first talk about Cornerstone, but also in sort of in a broader terms, uh, you know, it's a membership-based organization. Most groups are like that. There's a an annual membership fee that people pay. So this means that not only do they have the money, but they're they're willing to pay an annual fee to belong. So for entrepreneurs, that's a good thing. You know that they're not uh, just there to sort of hear pitches, but they're there. They're investing money to actually be involved in the group. And, and what, you know, the angel group does is it provides a structured process to evaluate opportunities. And also by being a, a group, it winds up being a good magnet to attract quality deal flow. Uh, by being a group that's out there and involved in the community, the group gets to see a lot more opportunities than any one individual might be able to see. And then through the structured process, there's multiple steps uh, that a company gets through that they then are able to make a, a pitch to the entire group. And then the group, as there's interest, will follow a due diligence process to figure out if there's an investment. And uh, if we get to that point, then usually there'll be then a subsequent process for a structuring and negotiating and deciding about making the investment itself. You're a leader yourself, an angel group leader. What are the key functions of that leader or coordinator? Well, a lot of it is organization and administration, you know, uh, unfortunately. But the, the nature of the beast is that uh, angel groups, if they're composed of the right people, it's a group of successful professionals, uh, busy people. And, uh, and the idea is to be able to, one, needing to make sure that you provide a quality set of opportunities to people to look at, need to provide a efficient process by which they could be part of, and uh, allow the group, both the entrepreneurs, portfolio companies, as well as the investors, to be able to network interface with other investors, both other angels, other angel groups, uh, venture firms. You know, in the end, a lot of this uh, interaction within the group is about business networking, but also making money. And uh, for for others, it's also about the the mentorship that they're providing to those entrepreneurs. So we wear this hat about you know being a shepherd about shepherding folks within this process, but it's also about providing a strong operational platform to get deals through this whole funnel, uh, to get good deals done, 
And then we're all going to be judged based upon the success of these companies. So, you know, ultimately, the goal is to continue to build out processes so that we're able to monitor and provide good governance over our whole portfolio of companies. So we've kind of touched on this already, but if you take an angel who's on his own, trying to find startups to invest in, structuring deals, et cetera, and you take an angel group like your own, what's the difference and what value does the group provide to those angel constituents? So, you know, number one is you know, any individual, unless they are incredibly successful or well-known within a community, will only see a few deals. And, and, and most of the deals that they do see are probably not going to be of high quality. So the angel group by itself is going to be receiving one, a higher number of opportunities. And by being in the business, like any company that is sort of focused on a particular area, they will then be attract, attract a much higher set of opportunities. That's number one. Uh, number two is uh, any individual, you know, angel, if they're just going into a deal, typically each company has a investment minimum when they're going into a company. You know, that could be 25000 it could be 50000 it could be 100000 As a group, depending upon how it's structured, and, and within our group, Cornerstone, we allow folks to invest, depending upon how much interest there is, either directly into a company or through an entity. We have a group called Cornerstone Opportunity Partners, LLC. We then are aggregating capital, and so it then allows individual angels to invest smaller amounts. You know, it could be 5000 it could be 10000 it could be 50000 but it may be lower than whatever the individual investment threshold would have been. So one of the things which we haven't talked about yet, this whole portfolio theory and diversification, and to be an angel in which uh, hopefully some people who listen to this will understand whether or not this is the right place for them to be, but these are high-risk opportunities. Uh, someone should be involved if they're getting into it. a lot of these. You never know which one is going to be successful. So the key is to invest in a number of them and to hopefully spread out those bets uh, across a good number of them. So the angel group, by its virtue of its opportunity, allows the opportunity, one, not only like we described, to see a lot more opportunities, but through certain uh, structures to be able to invest smaller amounts across a larger number of opportunities. Some other points are, again, as an individual, you're, you're really relying upon your specific expertise. You may go out to outside friends, but with an angel group, depending upon how large it is, you have 20 people, 40 people, 100 different people with different views that provide you insights into that opportunity. Sometimes it may not be what you're, you want to hear, but sometimes the best advice is, which makes you not invest in an opportunity versus investing. You know, that may have just saved you uh, a good amount of money. So, there's a lot more diligence. It's always good to have a, a, a secondary opinion. So that's a, another guiding factor of just trying to make better investment decisions. Yeah, certainly when I'm on my own looking at opportunities, I'm constantly pulling in subject matter experts with an expertise in you know a certain industry to help me evaluate. And I've noticed since joining the group and the spectrum of folks that are part of Cornerstone, uh, it, it helps tremendously from a time standpoint and yeah. from a uh, domain expertise standpoint. And it, one other thing that just you know came to me, which we didn't talk about, was just the other big aspect of you know, with a group is you know the nature of structuring the deal or getting a good value for your investment. So again, if you are an individual and you're about to invest twenty five thousand into a company, you don't have much leverage in that $25,000 investment. You know, if that company already has the term sheet out, you know, you're investing based on that term sheet. But if you're part of a group or you're working with a syndicate of different groups, 
you then have financial leverage. You're able to sort of dictate terms to that company. So that's one of our key goals for, you know, Cornerstone and the benefit to the members is if we collectively come together, we all have to agree and we leave it up to each individual to decide which one they want to invest in. But if we could wave a quarter of a million dollar check or a million dollar check, we have the direct ability to interact with that entrepreneur and founder, uh, dictate terms and structure and liquidation preference, uh, even board seats. And in the end of which I found over the years of which we, we you know, we have 45 plus portfolio companies being able to have an ongoing interaction with the company of being able to have monitoring and governance is incredibly important because the truth is that the CEO which you may have invested in may not be the CEO in a few years. And so you want to have structures in place to be able to continue to get the right information a few, in a few years down the road. Yeah, I've noticed the minimum amount to even participate is often 25K, 50K. And that doesn't give me a tremendous amount of bargaining power, ability to influence terms, not to mention my lawyer's fees on the side, you know, end up being a significant portion of that amount. So certainly that illustrates the power of the group. So when investments are made, how are they typically organized? As a group, we allow our members to make their own investment decisions. Uh, And again, I'm speaking directly for our Cornerstone group. So if there happens to be interest, we shepherd that sort of diligence process to, to get to a decision. But if there's only a few members that are interested, we don't, we don't try to get in the middle of that. We'll allow those individuals to invest directly. You know, as we said before, people have different experience sets, likes, you know, everyone can't always get on the same page. But, you know, the goal going forward is wanting to have more governance and monitoring. And so we see ourselves trying to put more and more effort through this structured investment vehicle, this Cornerstone Opportunity Partners vehicle. And that's where we see that there's enough dollar interest as well as individual participation. And so that, you know, through that effort, you know, we have what's called a uh, series LLC vehicle, which allows it to be pretty cost effective to establish investments on each company as they come to be. Each individual commits the dollar that they want. Some, we may have a specific minimum dollar requirement. Uh, others, such as sometimes uh, a secondary investment in a company, we allow for the minimum to be pretty low as we just want to uh, allow folks the ability to uh, invest more. But you know, the way it's structured is it's very similar to a, a venture fund. I mean, we, we have a, a one-time management fee, which we, as a, sort of the managers, have to manage over the entire life of the investment, which includes legal administration, travel, K-1s, accounting, all that. And it's really on the, it's, it's on my back that if, you know, somehow expenses go higher, you know, I shoulder the burden. I, I bear the cost of that. But it's trying to minimize the cost to our members or provide this good structured vehicle to get a better deal. And then we have, you know, really an incentive if the, if the deal does well that there's a, a back-end carried interest of which the Cornerstone Opportunity Partners manager gets as, as part of that success. So is it pretty similar to uh, a VC fund uh, in the way that you uh, you have a management fee as well as a percentage of carry? There is. You know, the big difference is that a typical venture fund gets a management fee every single year. This, you know, in trying to be doing it in very investor friendly, it's just a one time fee of which the manager is managing that cost over the life of the investment. Obviously, each investor wants the life to be as short as possible, but. And, and even though we state three to seven year time horizons, you never know. We, you know, if it's only two years, that's wonderful. But some of these investments could be five, seven, nine years. And so it's managing that cost over that life. So compared to a VC, the management fees are significantly lower. 
And then the carried interest uh, is like a VC, but I would say it's even more preferential to investors. It's a lower carried interest. Uh, actually, it's it's 15% versus the typical 20% for a venture fund. And actually, for our members, it's actually 10%. So uh, uh, we always try to give a, an incentive to folks to get more involved with Cornerstone as a member. And so that back-end fee is less. And plus, we, you know, we, we require a preferred return, a hurdle rate for all of our investors to get their capital back, plus a preferred return before there's ever any carried interest. So just to clarify that point, if the vehicle doesn't return over a certain percentage, then you guys would not collect that Correct. carry. Correct. Right? We want all the investors to get a good return. If that investment did not have a good return, then yeah, us as a manager who put that you know, that whole investment together, we'll, we'll get nothing. So there are angel groups across the nation, small markets, large markets, very different focuses. What differentiates one group from another? There's, as you look at groups across the country, I would say uh, predominantly uh, many groups are very localized. They only invest within their city, within their state. The investments may only be particular to technologies or products that may have emanated from a university. You know, sectors, you find some folks that may be predominantly focused in the life sciences field or consumer products. In the last few years, you've had a number of groups also been established that are focused on women-led entrepreneurs or even minority-led entrepreneurs. So, you know, over the last 10 years, the, the number of angel groups in the country is, is skyrocketed. And then just like with any bigger market, you find... Uh, splintering and, and specialization across them. What I, what I would say is, you know, for, for our group, we try to do the best and, and find the best deals. And so I, I think we're a pretty unique angel group in the sense that although we are based in sort of the Chicagoland area and we look at a lot of deals in, in the Chicagoland as well as the greater Midwest, we're one of the unique groups that invests or looks at deals across the country. So I would say you know, more than 50% of our investment portfolio companies today are outside the greater Midwest. They're on the East Coast and the West Coast. The second part is about also how angel groups syndicate or co-invest with others. There's a number who like to take most of the deal. They may just do very small deals, a couple hundred thousand, so they'll take the entire thing. Uh, others are more open to co-investing. I would say as our organization, we're looking for the best deals regardless of where they are. Uh, whether it's in Timbuktu or Chicago or anything else, we want to try to find the best deals and we try to leverage our network. So we're very open and want to co-invest with others because especially if the deal is outside of our market, we'd like to have a local partner. So we find ourselves investing with other large angels, other angel groups, venture funds, and in the past we've actually uh, had other large strategics, corporate strategics as investors as well. And then the lastly, I'll say is some groups also invest across various different stages of investment, whether it be sort of back of the envelope, you know, uh, pre-seed or seed companies versus ones that are in sort of growth stage or even later stage opportunities. For our organization, we define early stage as the company having developed a product or service, but they've at least shown that there's some customer validation. They could be pre-revenue, but typically they're on early revenue generation. So we will not invest in companies that will require a lot of development and engineering work. Uh, that would just be considered too early for us. There are other groups who will invest or get more comfortable with that. You know, but we also, as a group, have looked at some diversification opportunities where we've invested in later stage opportunities, ones where we saw that you can never guarantee it, but looked like there could have been a two or three year time horizon or it was more near term to get to an exit. 
And we've had a few of those where we've had companies gone public or been acquired within a few years. So that's, you know, that's sort of diversification sort of element of that. And then the last thing of where some angel groups differ is also whether or not they're very strict in the valuations by which they're investing in companies. There's a number of, you know, groups which will say we will not invest in any companies beyond a $3 million valuation or beyond a $5 million valuation. And, uh, and I understand that as a general philosophy because it, there's dilution that goes on in the end and you want to sort of, uh, you know, try to minimize that sort of in the future by being able to take a larger stake of the company. Uh, my personal opinion is I, I don't want to be that restrictive in the types of opportunities that we go at. If a company happens to be really good or if it's at a later stage and just is a unique opportunity for us to get involved, just by the very nature of its valuation, I don't want it to restrict it from us. For our, us and our members, they will define whether that valuation is appropriate. And a lot of times valuation does knock a company out. But I want the company and the management to be able to prove to us of why it's still a good investment, regardless of valuation. We've already talked about why one would join an angel group instead of just going solo. Can you talk about why one might join an angel group and choose to invest via that vehicle as opposed to choosing a VC fund to invest in? Yeah, it depends also on the, the angel group because uh, a lot of angel groups have actually created their own funds themselves, sidecar funds and other types of vehicles, which really act almost identical to a venture fund. So let, you know, let's just, you know, quickly, uh, you know, go back. You know, a venture fund, typically it's it's taking in other people's money. And again, they are paid for managing that money. And uh, in a typical venture fund, you that capital is called on an ongoing basis and it's really the the general partners of that fund which make all the investment decision. So it's sort of a blind pool. Uh, the general partners have that capital with the investors not knowing which companies are in that. The The model for most angel groups is it allows the angels to decide which deals they're going to do before they're invested. So they have then a discretionary capability to decide yay or nay on deals. Um, so although there's still some leveraging of the expertise and knowledge and deal sourcing of the angel group or the angel group leader, the investor, the angel member still has the final say of whether or not they want their money to go towards that deal. And, and that's really the primary difference of whether or not the individual member has access to deciding what deal to be done or not. It's a little bit of, you know, comparing being passive or versus active. And, and, and I think there's, there's room for both, but you know, certain people don't have the time or they won't, don't want to get involved in as much of the diligence. They'd rather, they'd like to look at it and be participate and see where they could be mentors. And so they'd rather just give, be able to give money and know that they're going to have a diversified portfolio across a range. Other people, and we give it at their discretion, want to be more involved in deciding where their money goes. And so, um, I think each person who's deciding which group they want to be in or even the types of structures should evaluate where their comfort level is in their involvement in that decision-making process. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. 
For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So we've got some listeners that are newer to startup investing. What advice would you give on how to choose the right angel group? Well, number one, I, I would recommend that it's best for, to try to pick a group that's local and convenient to wherever you may live. So, you know, the best way to try to find a group which is local is, you know, through the Association for Angel Groups in, in, in the U.S., which is the Angel Capital Association. So, and that's, you know, angelcapitalassociation.org. Uh, you're able to then search for angel groups by geography. Uh, that's number one. It, it doesn't mean that you need to restrict that because I would say, you know, us as an organization, we have had members across the country elsewhere that have been part of the group. And, and many of the groups have online software systems that allow you to access data rooms and documents for companies at any time, 24 hours a day. So you have that capability. But the localized aspect is, is very important because again, this, this element of the power of the members and their experience is critical. And I still believe in relationship building and face to face and the ability to interact with these people and develop that relationship and that rapport because they will be involved in helping make the decisions about which companies go to that next stage. I think that's important. And I, and I think especially if someone's new, it's important to be involved in every step of the process from a, from a pre-screening to a screening to the investment meeting to the due diligence process. And so the more that you can be involved with that and other members, um, to be shoulder by shoulder with them as they're going through the process is very helpful. You know, the other aspect is, you know, there's different groups that may have different minimums in terms of dollar amounts in which they may require on an annual basis to be invested. Everyone has to look at their financial wherewithal and where, where that is. The, this structure that we just talked about, whether or not there's a upfront capital commitment or whether you're able to make individual decisions is important. And then lastly, which we have to say about lastly, but I actually think it's probably the most important area in which I have great pride in our Cornerstone group is really the makeup of the individual members. So I would encourage anyone who's considering a group to ask to attend a meeting or several meetings, depending upon the formats, see how how the structure works, see the types of companies that are involved, but really try as much as possible to interface with the members, hear from them about their experiences, see whether these are the types of people that you would feel comfortable in a social setting with, see if these are the people that you would trust in an investment setting. You're only going to know more and more as time goes on, but I think you get a lot of a good sense within a few meetings whether these are the types of people you work with. And I, and I think that's 
that's critical. I, I think it's you don't want to be part of an organization which is, is composed of a set of people which has different values than you. So I think that's the most important value that you could find in an angel group. Michael, we've all heard people talk about how investing in startups can be a pipe dream or a roll of the dice. Um, you know, part of the reason for me doing this podcast is to show that there's a discipline here and it can be a focused process with practitioners that, that know their craft. Is it reasonable, in your opinion, to expect a return on investment when investing with an angel group or should it be treated just as a hobby? I believe you should go into it wanting and expecting an investment. At the same time, I think everybody has to be realistic in understanding that this is a, a high-risk activity that, depending upon how many investments you make, there's likely to be a number of them, very possibly a high number of them, that will go bankrupt to be worth zero. A few of them will be worth a fraction of. But it's all about the promise in aggregate of what that return is. And again, that goes back to the concept of if you're going to be in this area, you have to make that decision and you have to be in it for the long term. You have to be willing to make enough investments. And sometimes you often do not know which companies are going to be successful and which are going to be the duds. You know, I've been doing this as an individual and then through uh, several venture funds and, and then through Cornerstone and both our angel group and even sort of our angel fund for a while now and where, you know, all of them have been sort of uh, successes. And, and then also just recently, I've experienced some of the, the failures as well. And so it's humbling to sometimes see when you do get those. But the reality is you should have failures and know that that's part of it. Because uh, I would say in, the, in this business, if if you don't have those failures, you're probably not trying hard enough to get those big wins. But I think, you know, again, this is a high risk, high reward space. Cornerstone has been fortunate where they've had a, you know, 100x return. Uh, we've had some other failures. And the key is that there's enough of these companies which are continuing to raise additional rounds of capital. We found other companies that have been acquired. And I, I think if you, there's a disciplined process across this whole spectrum of sourcing, evaluating, structuring, and then ongoing monitoring and governance, you increase those odds in which I think there's a great success. Great. So moving on, do you have any recommended resources for more info on the topic of angel groups or angel syndicates? Again, I would refer you to the uh, Angel Capital Association. There's a great treasure trove of, uh, of information up there. Uh, one, there's a bunch of free resources up there. Then anyone who does become a member of a angel group, which is a member of the Angel Capital Association, there's a, uh, a bunch of other uh, documentation which is available you know, free to members. So I would say do use your research. Uh, look, there, there's lots of also interesting sites for angels uh, where you could participate as an angel and get deal flow. And I, I would encourage you to do that, which allows, again, a, additional deal flow, but also additional interaction with lots of other angels across the world. So we touched quite a bit on Cornerstone and some on independence equity. Is there anything else you want to touch on or, or tell us about what you're currently up to? No, the, the one thing I didn't mention was, so in, in addition to Cornerstone, as was mentioned, I, I'm part of independence equity, uh, which is an early stage fund, uh, so does many of the same things as Cornerstone, but it is more of a traditional fund where there's a committed set of capital for it. And, and for that, you know, we are much more focused and narrow in terms of the sectors. Uh, we're most focused, uh, in opportunities relating to water, energy, advanced materials, and agriculture. And so, and where we're also predominantly focused on, on the Midwest. So that's we've had a number of companies in which we've both as independence equity and, and in Cornerstone have invested in 
other times they're separate, but uh, it, it's just uh, it's an exciting time for a frame right now where we're seeing a lot of great opportunities in those spaces. To that point, uh, how is the current startup environment where we're located here in the Chicago area, and how has it changed? Well, you know, I've moved here at the end of 2002. Uh, we're already in 2014. It's dramatically changed. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, even when I first moved, there were a few angel groups, but they weren't doing very much, and that was really the uh, the reason for why I started an angel group from scratch uh, when I first moved here. I would say it's not a, it's not an easy task, uh, especially when you don't ha- didn't originally have a, I didn't originally have a network here when I, I started it. But what you found is you found uh, in our group as well as a number of other angel groups have sort of been built up since then and and have become very strong. We found a number of other uh, venture firms. Uh, get active, and we have some resources in the space, including 1871, which is sort of a co-working space and which has attracted a lot of investors across the country in addition to the Midwest. And luckily, we've also had a number of exits from companies, whether it be Grubhub and a Groupon or Tickets Now, Field Glass and others. There's been lots of successes within here in the Chicagoland area and which you know, the, the bread and butter of creating a good entrepreneurial ecosystem is not only having good research town, of which we have great institutions here, educational institutions, but that you then have good uh, company successes and then you have those entrepreneurs reinvesting in companies in the future. And, you know, I think luckily for us in the last three to four years, you found an acceleration of that. And then the one last point on this is that where I would say when I first uh, moved here, it was very clicky and I would say pretty insular in silos where people were making investments uh, and there wasn't much talking amongst each other. You know, nowadays you find most of the investors communicating more with each other and you find just in today's world that it's almost a requirement to have a syndicate of multiple investors in a deal, always knowing that you're probably going to have to raise multiple rounds of capital and having more of those folks at the table from, from the start. If we could cover any topic in venture investing, what topic do you think should be addressed on the podcast, and who would you like to hear speak about it? Well, the, the one thing which I will uh, say, and I, I, I teach, um, and I have been teaching uh, some courses at Northwestern, and uh, a number of those classes are relating to entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurial finance, as well as I co-teach a class called New Venture Energy, which is focused on um energy, uh, new energy startups. But the, the one thing which I find missing uh, from startups or a focus is the, the sort of the art of selling. And so the only thing you know, I would say is um, I would, you know, I think a topic of really looking at the, uh, the companies themselves about their ability to sell themselves, which, you know, which they're, they're constantly selling themselves. They're still trying to sell the product. They're trying to sell their company for investment. They're trying to sell their company in the sense for partnership or alliances. The more that we could focus uh, or find ways of promoting that capability uh, within within companies, I think, will be very beneficial for both entrepreneurs as well as investors trying to find out uh, which companies are, are good at that art of selling. Okay. So what are the best ways for uh, listeners to connect with you, Michael? Well, one, number one is, you know, go to the uh, Cornerstone Angels website. It has lots of information up there. It has ability to inquire about being a member or uh, companies to inquire about uh, submitting their information for uh, consideration. Uh, and then beyond that, you could uh, look me up on, on LinkedIn. 
and uh, send me information and, and sort of see uh, how I could be helpful and how we could connect. Great. Uh, you heard it from Michael. You can connect with him on LinkedIn. The website is cornerstoneangels.com. Good to see you as always, Michael, and thanks for the perspective. Thanks again, Nick. Okay, special thanks to Michael for joining us on the episode. I wanted to review a couple key takeaways from the interview. Number one, the key benefits of joining an angel group. Uh, Michael talked about a number of benefits, including number one, deal sourcing and deal flow. So investors get access to more deals and higher quality deals. Number two, broad expertise. Because groups are made up of many successful accredited investors from a, a variety of industries and disciplines, you can access a wider breadth of expertise when evaluating startups. Number three, the network and syndication. Both angels within the group and then also networks of angel groups can participate in deals together to get more purchase power, better terms, and better governance. Number four, pooling resources. So for diligence and other administrative activities, you have more people to share the burden. And then number five, fee structures. Uh, often the fee structures in an angel group are lower than that of a VC fund. And that segues into our number two takeaway, which is on VC funds versus angel groups. Uh, so Michael identified the primary difference between a VC fund and an angel group investment. He explained that in a VC fund, the general partner or fund manager is making all of the investment decisions on their own with no oversight or choice by the individual LP investors. Whereas in an angel group, the members have discretion to participate or not in each individual investment in a startup that is made. So for investors that are more interested in a passive role, the VC fund route works very well. And for investors interested in a more active role, angel groups are often a good fit. Okay, third takeaway is on failures. So Michael talked about how failures may be humbling, but the reality is you should have failures and know that it's a part of it. In this business, if you don't have those failures, you're probably not trying hard enough to get those big wins. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. The tip this week is about problems and solutions. So the vast majority of startups will be addressing an unmet need or a problem with their product or service. In addressing a problem, they remove pain, frustration, or wasted time, and thus are creating value for their customer. A traditional misstep with entrepreneurs is developing a solution to a problem that really doesn't exist. You've probably heard many of these stories. The founders built a product, it's slick, fast, well-branded, but nobody buys it because it's solving a problem that doesn't exist. While there's an important lesson there, I want to address a different, often overlooked issue related to problems and solutions. Yes, appropriately identifying the problem is the first step, and it's critical, but it's also pretty easy. Serial entrepreneurs and investors are often optimistic contrarians, walking through life, seeing problems all around them, and imagining solutions. But therein lies the trap. Problems are easy to identify, but solutions are hard. Just because you've done an excellent job with problem identification doesn't mean that the proposed solution appropriately addresses that problem. It is actually very difficult to create wonderfully appropriate solutions that are readily adopted by the target market. Often it takes many iterations and product testing before the solution is right. 
In a recent Cornerstone meeting, we had a founder pitch us on a software platform that significantly disrupted a very large antiquated market. It was a brilliant idea, and the product was beautiful. It was quite clear that this or something like this should exist to remove an enormous amount of wasted cost and time with the traditional approach. And the entrepreneur had a robust and thoughtful onboarding process that reduced the learning curve for customers and allowed them to ramp up on the new platform easily and quickly. However, the question was asked, what percentage of your customers that have been onboarded use your product on a regular basis? His answer, 3%. Now, as an investor, I cannot immediately identify why his customers are not adopting and using the platform. But I can definitively say that the current embodiment of his solution is not appropriately addressing the problem. Because if it was, he'd see a heck of a lot more regularly engaged users than 3%. So before making an investment, consider if the solution is, in fact, addressing the problem. And don't hesitate to ask the founder questions that will reveal if they've built a square peg for a round hole. All right. That's it for this week. Next week, we are talking valuation with Jeffrey Carter of Hyde Park Angels. Uh, valuation is always a tough term to calculate and negotiate, so I can't wait to hear his thoughts. Uh, remember to jump on the website at fullratchet.net for show notes and links mentioned today. You can also sign up for the newsletter there or by emailing newsletter at fullratchet.net. And if you could do me a huge favor, either give me a follow on Twitter at the Full Ratchet or give me a review on iTunes. All right, until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.